Hello, and welcome to A Stillness. I am exceptionally excited for today's episode as it comes along with a promotion of my memoir. I have been in the process of writing a memoir um, for almost five years at this point. (laughs) Writing a memoir is really hard because you keep living Right, So it's really difficult to determine what stories from childhood and young adulthood are the ones that make sense to share and and where you stop, where you decide to stop sharing and and put a the end, even though obviously it's not a the end because life continues. Um, But I'm very proud of this work. I, you know, I can both look back on much of the writings of it and think, oh, wow, like I write better now, or I would say things differently now, or maybe I would not include that story, but include a more recent story again now. (laughs) And so choosing to self-publish a memoir has been a really, really long process for me. And there were many many points where I thought it just wouldn't happen. Or I genuinely thought, okay, I tried. The attempt was there. I still love to write. I'm sure I still will write something of significance at some point in my life. Um, So it's been really empowering to say, okay, maybe I would say things differently now because I'm still living and growing and evolving as a human. And also maybe this is still a story worth sharing. So my memoir, self-published under Abigail Jewell, is Love Led Me Out, a memoir of redefining faith and fear. And it is in many, many ways the story of my Christian deconstruction. Um, I would actually almost more accurately describe it as the story of my faith deconstruction and reconstruction. Um, Faith is not something I uh, necessarily share a whole lot about in online spaces, mostly because faith is so personal, right? And as soon as you start to share about it, you kind of open yourself up to questions about it um, or a questioning of it. So I identify as a Christian, and I am also very aware that many, many people who also identify as Christians would say that I'm not one, in large part because I am curious and deeply inclusive um, and take the teachings of Jesus extremely seriously, so seriously that I'm not welcome in a lot of church spaces, um, that a lot of my views are considered heretical in a lot of church spaces. And so writing this memoir has both been a very personal way to process that and to also kind of proclaim, no, really, I am a Christian. And there's a huge spectrum of Christianity that especially in the U.S. where I live is becoming less and less welcomed. There's less and less space for kind of the broad diversity that Christendom has historically offered. Um, 
So that's kind of a long intro, but today's episode mostly is me reading an excerpt from my book. Consider this, again, a little promo, a little peek. You might find that something like deconstructing deconstructing a fundamentalist evangelical Christian faith is like not of interest to you, <laughs> and that's totally fine. And you may also find a little bit of curiosity or overlap with my story. Because as I shared in the, the very, very beginning of the book, the prologue is just a quote from an author that I deeply appreciate, Sheldon Van Aken. And the quote is, it is, I think, that we are all so alone in what lies deepest in our souls, so unable to find the words and perhaps the courage to speak with unlocked hearts that we do not know at all that it is the same with others. Robert Louis Stevenson said that every book was intimately a letter to friends. And that is how I feel personally about this project. I very, very much feel that perhaps it's um, not only the demographic of people who are either deconstructed Christians or know of friends or family members that have kind of had this reckoning with the Christian faith, which in the U.S. there was a huge kind of bubble or burst, if uh, if you will, of that, um, especially around Donald Trump's campaign and subsequent election and subsequent coup and trying to ignore um, the outcomes of the next election. But um, I also suspect that many of us have been in settings where we start to question something really big and fundamental about that setting, about that structure, about that system, about that family, about that policy, about that situation. And this is just me sharing mine. So an excerpt from chapter four. The beautiful and inconvenient presence of divine love is one that eventually reveals others' perspectives. After a while, it shows up and startles you on the face, in the words, in the presence of someone who looks nothing like you or someone who looks exactly like you. And then you can't unsee it. All our lives, we are given expectations about our place in the world. When I was 12, one of my books for school was called Beautiful Girlhood, which could more accurately be titled Internalized Misogyny. Though edited in the 1990s to make the 1920s language a little more accessible, the core ideals of the book remain sexist and outdated. Chapters about being feminine or traditionally girly equate compliance, silence, and prettiness with holiness. This floppy, pink-bordered paperback repeated the narratives that surrounded me in my Christian upbringing. My young womanhood and my desirability was why the Lord had made me. I was created for the pleasure of others. Those others were typically male authorities. I was created in order to be sacrificed, like Christ. Except in place of a cross, I would bear the shackle of a wedding ring and the martyrdom of motherhood. 
from a tragically young age, I understood I should be ladylike. Ladylike meant polite, not too loud, not too opinionated, not too intimidating, not too full of soft, undeniable light. To be gentle, meek, and toned back a bit from my natural self. The natural self, after all, is seen as innately sinful. We are from the earth, but to live only acknowledging our heaven-bound spirits. And a woman's spirit is only heaven-bound if it remains tightly woven to men's approval. This was all the more damaging. It was made abundantly clear to me, from my parents and my church-going, that my place in the world was wrapped up in men, that my right to exist was dependent on a favored male gaze. My life would become a worthwhile effort when a singular man would one day determine my value by gracing me with the right to birth and raise his children. And, like many other godly women, I looked forward to that day. Just as my unbelonging assured me of my holiness, my lack of sexual education was prescribed as purity, and my future was laid out on a straight and narrow path. I was so desperate to be worthy that I was rarely ever present as a child. My future, my ability to contribute to the world, was tied to marriage and family, and in the meantime there were few things in the present moment that could keep my attention— After grieving through the ages of five and six that a loving God had built so much hope into a tiny female body, I spent my energy energy fantasizing about being an incredible adult woman. With the acceptance of my womanhood, I studied Proverbs 31, though I admittedly found the other 30 chapters more enlightening. I even desperately hoped for a miraculous virgin birth at age 14 because I was just so ready to be someone. I spent so much mental, spiritual, and emotional energy thinking about the future me as a determined, sacrificial mother, a devoted wife, a clever, creative homemaker, a homeschool educator, passing along my wonder for the world to the next generation. But these aspirations were not wholly mine. They came from a checklist in my head only, informed by the knowledge and know-how of purity culture. These images didn't come from me. Though I am devoted, loyal, creative, and clever, I could only envision my sense of self being brought to life in the context of marriage and childbirth. And all these ideals didn't sit well. They never sank beneath my collarbones. They didn't live at the center of who I was but they placed me at the center of a world where only men could rule. Eve ate the first fruit, after all, and therefore women shouldn't hold power, because the most untrustworthy thing a woman can be is hungry for more. I supposed my appetite for life was some stronghold for sin. When I first moved away from fear and into faith, when I learned about the history of God as a woman— in large part thanks to the work of Sue Monk Kidd in her book Dance of the Dissident Daughter. Considering God as much a being of the feminine as well as the masculine changed everything for me. When I first practiced the Lord's Prayer with Our Mother who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, the earth and all its creation became vibrant. The universe became so life-giving, patient, and generous. 
I became best friends with the Eve of Genesis, and I began to realize that women are the Genesis. Creator God as Mother God made so much sense. The Trinity, as a family of mother, father, and beloved child, diversified the jealous, aggressive forms of God I had previously prayed to. This understanding sank past my mental checklist and into the essence of who I was. It rolled in the inner knowings and bathed in my light. It was then I began to see the divine in my own being. And I became hungry for more, though I knew the most dangerous thing a woman can be is hungry. I considered how entirely different the story of the fall would be portrayed if Adam had snatched the metaphorical fruit first. We'd be told that Adam truly trusted that all good things come from God. Adam would be painted as faithful, seeing the fruit was indeed good for eating, and being assured that the fruit would result in wisdom. We'd be sold a story of an Adam who was willing to risk everything to be knowledgeable in the truth, just like our God. Adam would become the hero of setting off the long story arc of redemption. Adam would be the starting point of the faithful path we are to follow. We would honor his desire to be like God. We would be told to seek truth, risking our security for a single taste of divine knowing. Instead, we are given the story of a discontented woman who was incapable of following the simplest of rules. A woman whose single action taints all of humanity, cursing everyone through one self-serving deed. We are pointed to this story as the foundation for the belief that women are subhuman. Women are second-class citizens on earth, here to experience pain and struggle. Eve's hunger is seen as the reason we experience an ultimate and demanding submission. Her hunger is given as the reason we have death. In this way, Eve is portrayed as the image of why we must die to ourselves in order to find God. But in the Hebrew, Eve means living. The ancient root of the word implies to make known and to breathe. What is life without breath? What is life if it does not make truths known? The truth of God showed up in my face in the sunshine-glazed mirror one morning, and I couldn't unsee it. I was made in the image of God, truly, really, actually, after all. And she loved me. Thank you so much for listening to that excerpt from chapter four of Love Led Me Out, the memoir by me, Abigail Jewell, now available through Amazon. There's a link in the show notes in the description for this episode. And also a loving reminder that if you also consider this work sacred, you can become a sacred supporter at Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash Abigail Jewell or by searching for a stillness. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.